Welcome to the first episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here today to talk about the practical side of operations work and how that relates to real-world uses of operations in the workforce. This is not a podcast that talks about how you do things at Google or how you do things at Twitter, where you have massive scale and PhDs walking around fixing problems for you. And this is also not really a mom and pop shop kind of thing where you have one person who's running help desk and servers and everything else that is too busy with all of that to build infrastructure. We're kind of in the middle, and this is the real world application of these technologies. So today we're going to talk about DevOps and the trendy version of what that has become. Much like how many jobs we've not gotten because they didn't like our, our definition of DevOps. <laughs> yeah. So much like Agile or REST, DevOps is a way of doing things and not a specific skill set or an engineering background or a job title. The moment anybody says that DevOps is a job title, we need to find our DevOps guy. Yeah, that's, that's finding a guy who's good at tooling, and that's probably a good person to have on your team. But that's not that's not what this is. DevOps is, in my experience, the slow blend of the development side of the shop and the operations side of the shop. All developers are developing operation skills, and all operations folks are picking up development skills because our worlds are colliding. And anybody who doesn't understand this confluence is probably going to have a difficult time finding a job in the next five to ten years because the fundamental landscape of what we do is changing. Either of you have any opinions on? So, warning signs for working for companies. If you're in a DevOps environment, that means you have tight feedback loops. So, you should really go wrangle your HR department and tell them not to advertise uh, jobs where you must have three or four years of DevOps experience. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, and I would have to I'd have to piggyback off of what you said earlier, Brendan, that it's not just tooling. It's it's more about culture. Uh the the whole organization has to buy into this, not only ops but devs as well, because they're gonna be the ones that build uh, or their software has to support the tooling that will enable so called DevOps methodologies, complete automation, uh continuous integration, continuous deployment, all that has to be supported by the apps that they develop. Or uh, you'll be sitting there with nothing to be able to run. First and foremost, DevOps is really a social issue and a social problem. And if, if folks aren't committed to the social constraints there, there's no amount of, of tooling and automation that's going to uh, bring things together if you can't get people in a, in a room or in a Skype call to talk to each other. Another piece of this that I've seen at, at previous organizations is Anytime people start talking about, oh, the silo between this department and that department, and if the departments happen to be an engineering department or an operations department and a development department, you're not doing DevOps no matter what you say. Once you have a silo that's that, does that rigidly enforce that the institutional knowledge says, oh, there's a silo between these groups, you have a bigger problem than, oh, we're going to do DevOps to solve this can solve. You have to actually break down those barriers because that's what lets you actually, that's what lets you utilize the tooling the DevOps mindset provides. Let's not forget the silos between your operation guys and your operation guys and those other operation guys. Oh, yeah. That doesn't happen in the real world. Or the difficulty that 
occasionally comes up when you have two offices on different sides of the country, or if you have offices on different parts of the world, or you have some of the team is distributed and some of the team isn't. I know, Jared, you've worked at companies that I've worked at you with, where if you're not in the office during that particular water cooler conversation that happened to happen, you don't have any idea what's going on and you lose context of things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's uh, one of the, even though I love uh, remote work, that is one of the, another thing that is like DevOps that has to have a culture buy-in. If, if you're going to have remote workers, uh, it, it takes everybody to uh, be mindful that they're not disseminating important information and in non-distributed uh, means like chat or email or other methods that the remote workers can consume as well. Uh, so that kind of goes hand in hand back with, with the culture aspect. Who doesn't like working from home? And I, I really think they're very similar sort of social constructs. If you're, you have to, you have to culturally be aware and plan to have remote employees and they work really well when you do so. Uh, it's similar with DevOps. And once you build those fundamentals of how you communicate well between all your teams, that's really that's 80 or 90 percent of where you're trying to go yeah and, and i've noticed that the same with uh quote-unquote devops methodologies especially when you lean towards automation that there's a there's an inherent fear uh from some people from some organizations uh as well as with remote culture as well um and and if that fear was to be replaced with with the proper culture i think that they would reap the benefits of not only uh you know remote workers, but the tooling and, and the collaborative nature of DevOps as well. So I found a funny while I was doing research uh, the other day, uh, looking at the InfluxDB database, which is a time series database. And I'm reading their documentation, and they have all sorts of, of a little bits of candy, like this lovely quote. The first and obvious problem is one of scale. In DevOps, for instance, you can collect hundreds of millions or billions of unique data points every day. Why do I think they really have no understanding of DevOps completely at all? Or some marketing person had gotten a hold of that and was writing copy and nobody bothered to approve it. Which is the other piece of that puzzle. Because DevOps is... DevOps leads to a lot of automation and usually a lot of measurement, but you first have that social construct before you you can figure out how best to sort of implement that. As the, the corollary, even non-sort of DevOps shops use metrics and take measurements of stuff and monitor things. And record um, logs and action data and generate reports for people. This is all... it's not so... The first time I heard the, the phrase DevOps was sitting in your office, Jack, a couple of years ago. DevOps had become a, a trendy buzzword, though I hadn't known it quite yet. You mentioned, oh, this, this DevOps thing, that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I said, what do you mean? It's the, the idea that assistant administrators were not only responsible for installing OSs and keeping hardware up to, up to date and keeping patches installed, but we're also writing all the glue that keeps you know, this application talking to that application and keeping the users happy and maintaining all these other pieces and then treating infrastructure and the server environment as, as a code object rather than as 
just an, another special snowflake that somebody installed by hand. And at that job, was, I was really amazed at where you guys had gotten, where in the late 90s, your, you and your team had built an environment where all the servers were backed up regularly. So there was your, your data protection. But any particular server could die, and you'd have a copy up and running in 90 minutes. And this was not a widespread idea or commonly held that, oh, yeah, our our big iron server, yeah, if it dies, yeah, big deal. It would just, we'll set up another one. And we ha- we'll just restore the backups, and we have all the all the installations automated. There's no human involvement whatsoever. We don't have any idea that, oh, well, once this thing comes up, then somebody has to log in and do these four commands, and then this other thing will happen. No, just you, you built it, it comes up, it's done. And they're all the same, and you didn't worry about drift that way. That place had so many wonderful tools and so many things that people associate with DevOps, but... Talk about a completely opposite from DevOps culture. So to me, it's a really fantastic example of of what is and what isn't a sort of DevOps world. Um, you can call yourself DevOps all you want to and not have the, the social constructs. Um, you can have all the toolage and think your shop runs perfectly automated and, and still not be a, a sort of DevOps folks uh, that, that people are interested in working for. So it's really interesting how you get facets of of this culture um, so well rooted, um, but it really is is a rare and and not often found place that is sort of a full blown DevOps shops that has the the excellent communication skills between their developers, the operations folks, management, whoever else you work with, oh, customers are, are they important at all? <laughs> um, as well as the toolage that goes with it. Another big issue is, in, in a lot of places, traditionally, operations folks assume they need to know nothing about the application, and a lot of developers assume they need to know th- nothing about the environment. So a developer will write a piece of Java code or a Bash script or whatever it is and assume, oh, we'll put it in the server and somebody will go and set the permissions on it. And the operations folks are screaming because it's the, you didn't package this at all. There's no way to get this cleanly done. You have things all over the file system. You're doing all kinds of weird stuff. And so from the operations point of view, yeah, this is broken. But from the developer's point of view, the developer says, I have a piece of code that I've written that needs to get up because it's bringing value to the organization. It's either bringing in revenue or it's bringing, it's making users happy or whatever piece of the puzzle it is. And the operations guys are just saying no to me. And that doesn't work either. So there's a, there's a lot of cross-training that has to happen and a lot of sharing of the responsibility of the development of the product, the delivery of the product, who maintains the product, who's on call for the product. And that's the core of DevOps. It's not, it's not so much the idea that, oh, we're going to do this the right way. We're going we're gonna to set up you know, Jenkins and we're going to set up this other tool here and we're all going to use Git. Well, you can use any version control system and you can use any continuous integration deployment system you like, or even not use one and write your own, as long as you have automated tooling in place to remove human error from things and to get reasonable, repeatable steps for deploying applications quickly, ideally with tests. So, oh, all the tests have passed. And if you need to have a human actually sign off and say, yeah, okay, all the tests have passed, a human has verified that this is sane, we're, we're deploying. Um, instead of having a months-long you know, coding session. And then after that's done, you go to the developer, or you go to the operations folks and say, okay, well, I've got the application and I've got it running really well and it needs to go out. And the developer says, oh, but you're using 
a newer version of the database than we have, and I can't do this, or whatever constraint that was never communicated. Ah, old school software development. We've all been there. It's not fun. We've all been there. Alive and well in some organizations. Usually, uh, tight feedback loops in a DevOps environment where uh, you're actually communicating to developers, developers are communicating with the operations folks, is you end up not only with, with feedback loops that happen very quickly, but as you do develop tools, as you do define workflows that work best for everyone, you tend to get into situations where you can deploy code very quickly, which is a technique that a lot of the uh, uh, Fortune 500 tech companies have used to great effect. Um, I know several companies that I've looked at or interviewed for, one of their sort of things is if you get hired, you know, you'll be committing code to the application or to the website within uh, 24 hours of your start date, which is just kind of scary if you ask me, but there you have it. Considering that in most operation shops, it takes between six weeks and six months to even really understand the infrastructure because things have been, things have grown organically over the years and nothing's written down or if it's written down, it's not written down correctly. So there's a lot of, okay, well, how does this thing actually work and which server does this run on and why is this thing different from that thing and why do we keep these things over here? Yes, it takes it takes anyone with brains about them six weeks, eight weeks or so to spin up and really be productive. But, Brendan, you hit on a fantastic point. The faster your environments move, the more feedback loops and, and the tighter they become. One of the interesting problems that develops is documentation of your platform and operations and how, how your workflow works. I know I've got documentation that's way out of date because things have moved so fast documentation is never the the first priority to fix especially when the holiday shopping season is coming soon well just today at work i was digging through a piece of code and wondering why a particular config file hadn't regenerated itself and found out that it was never plumbed into the the management script and when i asked around they said oh yeah that that gets run manually because that was that's a one-off that changes so infrequently that it wasn't worth the time when we were last firefighting this to, to make it automated it's like, oh, well, that's not in the wiki. That's not written down anywhere, and I didn't know. So I'd, I'd been assuming for the past three days of, of work that this is the problem with the config file not working correctly was me not doing something right in the code, whereas was I just hadn't run the script by hand again. So how do you guys uh, feel about keeping documentation up to date in a DevOps sort of environment? I, I think I think that's where tooling really comes into play. I, I think as much as possible, although Brendan's example is one where tooling can fall down. Uh, you know, if, if especially if you use tools like Puppet or Chef or some configuration management, obviously there's going to be a trail. Uh, you know that the code will document it for you, um, but if you don't take the time to put it in those tools, then you won't have it documented. So I, I think it's twofold. I think try to use as much tooling as possible to help you uh, to alleviate the pain of having to manually enter information. But when it makes sense, do write it down in some central spot, whether it's a wiki or CMDB or some, some central spot. But it, it, again, it goes along with culture as well. That needs to be something that is, is treated as first class. And instead of it being, Oh, we don't have enough time. That needs to be uh, one of the, key things that happens, you know, when we deploy something or when we change something that there's time baked in to go back and document what happened so that next time you're not scratching your head or wasting three days on something. 
or trying to figure out, okay, so who who touched this last? Oh, that was six months ago. Do, do they remember what it was? Oh, great. And I think you're exactly right, Jared, that this is a culture issue as well as a tooling issue. You can have self-generating code. You can have things that, you know, your CMDB automatically updates from the running state of AWS or whatever hosting company you're using, or even just um, Perl scripts or whatever horribleness you have running on the servers themselves that, that call in and say, hey, I'm this host, I have this much memory installed, I have this whatever, I have these packages installed, just so you have a record of it. And that can be self-updating, but the architecture part, the why did the system get built this way? Why do we move objects from point A to point B in the system has to be written down somewhere and there has to be a culture of when I change this or when I build a new system, I update the the documentation, and I explain why we're doing it the new way. One of the concepts I like, um, and I use frequently, is the concept of read-only Friday, where there are no changes that are made on Friday. Uh, One reason, because if you break something, do you really want to be woken up in the middle of the weekend? And secondly, it's just a fantastic time to be able to, to spend time with your documentation, and or doing some code research, or working on something that's not related really, most importantly, probably documentation. Unfortunately, yes. Well, at least you're documenting it, right? (laughs) Well, also the number of times that I've, in my career, in the past 15 years of working in operations, that I've come across documentation that is old enough to not only be outdated, but almost be criminally incorrect, where it's telling you to do something that would be actively dangerous to the current system, because somebody wrote it down five years ago, 10 years ago, but what they've written down bears no has no bearing on what reality is now. If your documentation is not old enough to drink, I don't want to read it. <laughs> to sort of go to that point, though, I, I think that, you know, we're used to people were extremely proud of, you know, years of uptime. That, that actually shows that you haven't been applying patches in years. If your documentation is older than you know, a year or two, then that probably means that either A, you haven't touched the system or B, more likely you've touched it. You just haven't updated the code or updated the documentation about what you did. Yeah, this is one of the reasons that change logs are so nice. And in the top of the thing, you say, this is revision 1.1, date, author. I updated the thing to talk about how we're using Kafka now or whatever technology it is. So people have an idea of the vintage of the document, who wrote the document, and what kind of changes got applied to that update? Because it's not just an M time on a file where it's like, oh, well, it was, it was updated yesterday. And all that happened was somebody went in and removed their name from the file because like, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to be associated with this anymore. This is, this is not my project anymore. So. I usually add a status tag to the documents I'm working on as well, because sometimes I'm trying to either figure something out, how I'd like to enforce a policy or set up a policy or set up a naming space something or other, and just being able to work that out where other people can see it and say, this is a draft document. And then once we're finished and have have made decisions and are all okay with things, we can go back, update the documentation, because things have changed, and say draft final or draft final as of, or something useful. I think this is a good start to the podcast. We will be talking a lot more in the coming weeks about choice of tooling and 
other political aspects of the DevOps philosophy, as well as other other pieces of operations work in general. Um, database replication and clustering, cloning, migrations, how on-call rotations should work, um, best practices for package management, and do you want to do containers, or should we move into instances, or should we stay with VMs? When does bare metal make sense? All, all these kinds of questions are things that we'll be talking about on this podcast going forward, and... We were. Packaging is going to be a very special episode, just just to let everyone know. It may be more than one. Um, or three. In the beginning, we're going to try to keep episodes to about 30 minutes. We don't want to make this into a long and winding podcast um, until that becomes, it becomes clear that our listeners want that kind of podcast out of us. So check out our website at operations.fm. And send us some feedback. Talk to us on Twitter. Let us know what you think. The username that I've used pretty much everywhere for the last 15 years is B-W-D-E-Z-E-N-D. That's what I am on Twitter and on Reddit. And I'm happy to take questions and talk about the podcast and operations work in general. And uh, I don't have Twitter, but the handle I use on pretty much everywhere on the internet is IPstatic. Uh, so I have a GitHub account and a uh, Reddit account as well. Um, and the same as Brendan. Uh, happy to talk. You can find me at JJ Neely, uh, J-J-N-E-E-L-Y at GitHub. And, well, you know, that thing called Google. It knows where I live. Thank you, guys, and I will talk to you next week.